This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority, the designated investment business, and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Thursday, 18th of January. With me today, I have friend of the show, the mighty asset capitalist, Hugh Henry. Hugh is in London, and we've taken this opportunity to chat through his thoughts for 2024. Hugh, welcome. Uh, Nick, wow. Um, I'm full of trepidation. I I don't know if my mind has survived my parting over the the New Year period, Uh, but we we shall see. So you're in London. For a, for a long time or just a couple of days? What's yeah. the plan? I mean, it feels existential. I am in London, but um, I I come carrying the the, the festive kind of um, flu, if you will, and so I'm kind of coughing my lungs. But I'm I'm in London. Uh, I'm going to celebrate the twentieth birthday anniversary of my my, my oldest daughter. Oh yeah. Uh, so I'm going to have another party tomorrow night, uh, and then I'm back. What's this beautiful sunshine today? It's bitterly cold, so I'm going it is bitterly cold. Some hot yeah. sun. Let's talk about your thoughts for 2024. Let's go on a macro acid capitalist trip. I think there is a question that most of the market is wanting to know the answer to, and most listeners, is when do you think the Fed will cut rates? Um, heavens, the Fed, the Fed, the Fed. Um, I, I come from not a land down under now singing songs from the 1980s. But I, I come from a, a little faction that hotly contests the uh, or, origination and the direction and the influence of interest rates. Um, and I think it's most closely associated with a Swedish economist from 100 years ago, Kurt, uh, Kurt something or a weasel, Kurt, I don't know. Pop goes the weasel. Uh, but he had this kind of natural rate of, uh, of interest rates to say that it's actually it's determined by the, the circumstances, yeah. that it's all a facade, these policymakers, um, and that these, you know, the, the great complaint about the last 10, 15 years that somehow rates were so low and, and they were kept uh, unnaturally low by uh, the menace of, of policymakers. I find that absolute nonsense. Rates were determined by supply and demand. Mm-hmm. Banks were overwhelmed by um, by deposits because the private sector had no appetite for entrepreneurial risk. And so the inter- the interesting aspect, it's all interesting, but the, the course of the last 18 months, for me, watching from my little legion, is that we had this distortion. We had policymakers actually confront race and actually impose their view of, of where rates should be, yeah. had to be. Um, and my, my view has always been that the, 
as almighty as these great offices of the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England and the European Central Bank seem to be, um, they're kind of puny versus the overwhelming forces. And the forces perhaps I'm alluding to, and people say, well, why are you still re referencing the great financial crisis of 2008? Um, and I'm referencing it still because I feel that that's the prevailing monetary climate and that the issues that came to the fore have never actually been successfully challenged or given the chance to heal. And therefore, I still see that the, the natural rate of interest rates is actually very, very low. Mm -hmm. Okay. So does that mean we see the Fed then cut rates quite aggressively? Or do you think it's still too early for the Fed to make that decision in their policy? I, I, I guess I want to quote um, uh, the legacy of observations. The Federal Reserve cuts rates very rapidly. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. that's what they do. And why is that? Because again, they're fighting a natural course um, that's, that's, that's bigger than, than their intellect. So I, I, I wrote back in November, so here I am, I'm suffering from a flu. Back in November, I was suffering from dengue, uh, the kind of, uh, from the, the mosquito. A gruesome thing, I've had it three times now, and it's a real bone crusher. But um, back then, on medication, I wrote a paper called um, the net positive coefficient. I think or the positive, something like that anyway, uh, where I drew comparison with the travails and of course the disaster of the Chernobyl mm -hmm. nuclear power plant and subsequent explosion. And I likened that to this universe of monetary central, uh, central banking and, and the monetary universe. Um, and if you will, nuclear reactor, You've got this, think of it as a melting pot uh, full of these nuclear f fusions, and that's creating the energy. And that's very analogous to this in the enormity of the United States economy. Yep. And, and thousands, if not millions of transactions, it's the energy uh, of the economy. And you have, a, you have the Federal Reserve and, and you have the, the guys working at the control panel in Chernobyl. And they have, if you will, if, if we think of it as a, as a bowl of soup, there are kind of knobs yeah. for controlling the temperature. We, you know, it's a little bit Goldilocks. We don't want it too yeah. hot. We don't want it too cold. Um, and the, the the great malaise of Chernobyl was several fold, but it, it came under this notion of a positive void coefficient, positive void coefficient, whereby the actions of the administrators and the controllers mm -hmm. to rectify and to bring it back to the mean, if you will, actually did the reverse, yes. they accentuated, and they created the, the, the explosion. And, and some of the things were unique to Chernobyl in that the, you, you would insert control rods when you wish to kind Can't, of bring it down. So cool, cooling rods. Cooling rods, exactly. Um, and who knew, certainly not the control guys, but they were too short. Yeah. They were too short for that particular reactor. And secondly, uh, the coolant that was being used was graphite, but graphite shouldn't really be used in a water-based system because it, it tends to, it's like pressing the brakes, you actually accelerate yeah. initially. Um, and I feel there are elements of avoid coefficiency in the journey that the Federal Reserve has taken. And, and that comparison, and also that comparison that you, you are invested as the controller with this certainty that you press this mm -hmm. button and, and there are definite actions. Yeah. 
and complexity uh, takes forward. And, I, and I've always maintained the absurdity, the precision with which we talk about GDP. We measure GDP quarterly. Mm -hmm. In the UK, uh, we're measuring it monthly, and we're measuring it to two standard deviations. It's preposterous, right? You know, and what you actually, again, if we go to the legacy of observations, what you discover is that the Federal Reserve, think of them at the control panel of this nuclear power station, uh, when they're most called upon to, uh, to use their skill set, they're typically dealing with bad GDP data, mm -hmm. which is to say one year, two years, three years later, the data is revised yes. conclusively yes. Exactly right. away yeah. from what they thought. So that's going on. But in terms of the void coefficient and trying to uh, parallels with these control rods and the coolant, the, the great shock was the, the period 2020 and 2021 um, with the, the great fears concerning civilization mm -hmm. but concerning uh, the, uh, where the economy might, might go was that, of course, long-term rates dropped uh, yep. profoundly below 50 basis points on the 10-year, below 2 percentage points on the 30-year in America. And that allowed for the private sector to, to refinance. And it wasn't like they had a window of opportunity. You had yeah. to do it or you missed it. Yeah. They had, a, they had a, like a year to nail this thing. And, and they did. And so up to 30-year maturities, the private sector immunized itself mm -hmm. and, and that kind of feels a little bit like you're you're the fed and you're putting your control rods you're raising interest rates but these control rods going into the reactor they're too short because everyone's actually immunized they're like yeah. well it, that doesn't affect care. me yeah, exactly. i don't care you know i'm fixed for 30 years yeah. at two and a half percent mrs mrs andrew Bynum. um so that was going on um and and of course, it, it seemed to require more pressing of the mm. buttons, if you will. And it seemed, and so again, if I cite observation, we had the uh, the the magnitude of the rise, essentially from zero to yes. five and a half. Yeah. And the period in which we got there was it was the most rapid uh, and most intense. I mean, it's breakneck velocity hiking. Um, and so that that concerned me at the time because we live in an era of unprecedented leverage vis-a-vis -vis the size of the economy. Yes. You know, we're like three and a half yeah. times debt to GDP. Now we're there because asset values are also at unprecedented high levels versus the income that we define as, as GDP. But the fear that we have is sometimes we have this, it's called the bezel. The, the bezel is the mark on assets. And, and they're not marked in it's not this stationary thing. They they change, they fluctuate, and if the if the asset value changes, then you get this duress where uh, you're called your ability to service that debt gets called into question. So um, here we are, and all of that has happened, um, and this nuclear power plant, the inspectors are going. I, I mean, I don't know. I've we I've raised interest rates a lot. Yeah. I've done it very rapidly. Um, if we look at the last, the, the third quarter GDP for America, it grew at five and a half percent. And the unemployment statistics, which I think are, I, I think are subject to a long debate, but uh, first-hand reflection. Still quite hot. Super hot. So the reactor super hot. Um, and then we got this strange event in December where the Federal yeah. Reserve went, 
holy moly, uh, you know, we, something's not right in the reactor. And we've got to tell you, next year, we're going to be cutting rates. And everyone's like, oh, really, really? Wow. So uh, this, we're, we're live. They're going to cut rates. Yeah. Um, but I find it, I find the, the better question is, why? I think you're going to ask me why. Well, I, I will ask you why. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's, let's go into why, because, well, maybe we'll come on to inflation, but yeah, why? I have no idea. Um, the uh, why, um, I mean, why is guess, guesswork? But, um, but again, it's back to the, the natural flow and tendency of the monetary order. I'm making this reference point to 2008. Um, and, and what we can say is that the Federal Reserve now is actually uh, coming closer to the, the view of the fixed income market, mm-hmm. which for over two years has... There's been a disparity, hasn't there? There's disparity been... between the short end and the long yeah. end that the, the fixed income market has been saying these rates... They're, they're, the, the fixed income and the curves, the inversion in the curve market, the, the market has been saying these rates are not natural. Yeah. yeah. The natural tendencies for things to be much lower. But the Fed's had the supporting brief of the, of the labor market and, and the GDP's held up. Am I right in the 70s that 70s we saw inflation, rampant inflation, quite aggressive inflation like we've seen here, then it tamed, and then it went again. There was a second wave of, of very high inflation. Yeah. If we begin, if the Fed begins to cut rates now, and we have other issues going on around the world, geopolitical issues, is there not a risk that, that actually inflation comes back and then we're in a position where rates have to be raised again? If, that, if 2% inflation is a government target? Well, this is the, the narrative of the most boring uh, market commentators. They get all the column inches in, in the platforms and the, the daily financial news. Um, why do I think, I think, it's, I, think it's, I think it's absolute nonsense. Yeah. Uh, why? Again, it's back to natural tendencies of flow. And in the 1970s, there was a profound uh, and a profound and newly powerful force behind the infusion of, of money or the creation of money. Um, latterly, I mean, back then we never we never discussed this, but today we, we've got terms for it. Uh, we call it the, the euro dollar mm-hmm. market. And, and that, that can relate to many things. But when I say that, that is the creation of, of dollars outside the sovereignty of the United States, outside its borders. This is overseas banks creating dollar liabilities. And that began to become really a big market-moving thing in the 1970s because, of course, you know, we went from $2 to over $20 in the price of oil. And those Arab nations are are not populous. Mm -hmm. So they created an immense surplus of, of national savings, which went on deposit. Yeah. And, and then on deposits, a liability for a bank, the bank looks to create an asset as a loan. And so we had a, an enormous tear in uh, predominantly South American uh, sovereign lending to places like Brazil and Mexico in the 1970s. But elsewhere, money, money banks were falling over themselves to make you uh, a loan to create mm-hmm. money. And that is the plasticity which supports higher and higher prices. Yeah. Because your wallet, yeah. if you will, there's more and more dollars going into your yeah. wallet year over year over year, and so you can sustain prices. Now that, the zenith of that was 2007. 
Yeah. Where again, we, we had this thing, you know, uh, liar loans or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. ninja loans, yes. you know, no income, no job, yep. etc. Where you're almost, you, you would have this long epitaph about how you just got divorced, you're out of prison, you got a drug habit, and then the bank is like, like I'm, I'm busy, do you want the money or not? Yeah. You know, they were desperate to give you the money. Uh, that generosity or idiocy or whatever uh, came to an end back then. And there are many overarching reasons. That, I mean, I, I say the overarching reason for that, um, it's too much to go into right now, but is the, the rise and rise of uh, the of free capital flows and, and mercantilism and, and how we've engaged with world trade in the two in the last mm -hmm. three decades. Yeah. Yeah. But that since 2009, money has not been plentiful. Uh, and so there's not the pumping of pumping up of your wallet with dollars that can support more and more and more spending. And so what we have seen is that um, discretionary spending has actually had to be to be reined in. Yes. And you're now seeing a very sharp deceleration yeah. in prices. It looks very much like the period after the Second World War. Okay. The, the yeah. enormous yeah. price surge in the immediacy where there was supply disruptions, yes. we had to yeah. reconfigure. Which we had with COVID. Which, uh, COVID was a war. Yeah. COVID was a global war. Yeah. And and we there was immense reconfiguration of supply. Uh, and then there was an, a, an immense, who knows if it was wise or not, but the, you know, the, the, the stimulus checks, I want to say it was wise. You know, we, they had to do things back then. Uh, but it created uh, an intermediate and a very powerful thrust of, of higher prices. But I, for one, was using the background noise of the of the monetary condition to say that it would not be long lasting. Okay, okay, and let's change tack a bit. Who do you think is going to be the U.S. president come November? Um, it it would seem there's an inevitability about you know uh, Trump, um, but again we we uh, we just have to still be uh, we have to make sure we we don't swallow newspapers that, mm -hmm. that, that yep. there's data so for instance yeah. tr trump obviously uh, did very well in the, the caucus caucus the iowa, iowa yeah, yeah. Uh, and so you see these unprecedented that he got over 50 percent and the nearest rival was maybe 90. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he seven percent of all republicans who are registered in the state of iowa which is not a big state uh, voted yeah i mean that's so not, there's, not there's very still very small voting. data yeah. sets um and and the, the 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 Republican assault on the ladies, you know, with yeah. the abortion thing, yeah. is uh, we we saw it in the midterm elections, yes. yeah. where you didn't get uh, the Democrats being kind of driven out, if you will. It was it, the the force was less intense. That still is out there, and it still ruminates. Um, and so at this point, I want to say we don't know. Um, there and there are many shocking things or otherwise it could still happen we are talking about uh, biden and trump who are elderly yeah and who are subject to stressful lives and so let's see um but it removed from markets you know as, as an individual trying to make my best on this planet i i kind of um you don't fear for the people that trump surrounds himself in terms of the economy a lot of the decisions seem to be on the right side but the, the morality uh, and and the test to American democracy is something that, personally, um, I hope we don't 
see a rerun of. No, I don't don't disagree with that in any way. It's interesting to see that the dollar rallied aggressively on the on the on the Iowa caucus's results, actually. I actually, for my sins, was staring at the dollar chart today, maybe in preparation uh, for this conversation. And if you can if you can make that chart say anything, wow, then, then kudos, kudos to you. Um, it actually comes back to the what we were talking about, this natural tendency of money and, and the next step in interest rates. Um, that actually, uh, th- there are, can I say, intermediate trends? I mean, there, there has been an intermediate sell-off in the dollar mm-hmm. ever since really the, the mini banking crisis of, yep. of the end of Q1 last year. And I want to say the dollar tumbled from 116, like the, the, the Dixie, the Dollar General, um, to, to 100, let's say. Yep. Uh, and we're now at like maybe 103, 104. Um, those intermediate uh, moments, they, they tell you that when, they, they tell you that the banking sector gets a little bit of, not acid reflux, but the opposite. Over that period, people just got a little bit more bullish mm-hmm. on the world yeah. and, and more willing to accept in this world of euro dollar, uh, the dollar movements of that nature tend, tend to suggest willingness and confidence in asset collateral because mm-hmm. it's all collateral based extension of credit today um, and they were more willing to extend that kind of credit and, and markets took a bump to, to, to the upside um, and if you want to if you were to get into the pro- prognostications of, of 2024 and where will we be um, you could you could kind of read it through the lens of the dollar if the dollar like I said it's 103 if you tell me it's 90 at the end of this year, I'll tell you that uh, risk assets have had yeah. another incredible year because I would my submission would be that uh, asset-based collateral lending would be uh, robust, more than robust. Mm-hmm. If we're more like 116 heading to 120, it's like, oh boy, you know, I would say Federal Reserve rates will be close to zero yeah. and, and there will be a sale of a fire sale of asset prices. So at least we've got something we we can yeah. watch, you know. My my, if you had to press me, which would be fair enough, I, uh, I, I still feel like it's 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 a higher dollar, uh, yeah. and therefore look out. I actually think whoever becomes president this year might be eclipsed by the circumstances. Yeah, um, can you say that um, um, Obama was? I mean, you can't say he was eclipsed, but you know he was the first black president. But he was, he 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 was uh, he came to office in the depths of of what an ongoing depression actually. You know, so um, I, I I still think I'm, I'm fearful of the portents for this year, the portents of of what the Federal Reserve can see and kind of glimpses that I get occasionally by when I look at my computer. And then let's go a little bit farther afield. There's been a lot of commentary about Japan this year, um, not just the equity market, but just in general. And actually, maybe the idea of a, a rate rise in Japan leading to a stronger yen. Um, any thoughts there, Hugh? Um, categorically, there will be no rate rise in Japan. I mean, uh, that it had some uh, impetus behind it in mm-hmm. the second half of last year, but... Um, the, the inflation, uh, the retreat of inflation. Yeah. Uh, it may well prove somewhat erratic 
but it is almost certainly in retreat, and that is globally. Um, and I mean, sometimes I get bored and I kind of look at Japanese government deficits and spending and size to GDP. It is holy moly. Um, these guys really, that system works with it. You know, interest rates, they're not low, they're, ne they're still negative yeah. in, in Japan uh, and for, for good reason. So uh, we're, we've got to within 7% of the, the all-time high in the Nikkei, mm -hmm. 40,000. And, and Japan is something which has, I can't say it bookended my career, but um, my first year as a graduate in uh, an investment pension, investment management house, um, because I had a some well, I had a relevant degree. I'd studied accountancy and economics and whatever, and like, oh, we're, we're sorry, yeah, we'll put you into yeah. Mad Japan. And so I covered Japan uh, from for one year from uh, from October 1990 to October 1991, and and of course they'd just come off the high. I think we come down very rapidly from yeah. forty thousand into like 28,000. And, and of course the partners were, it's going back up, you know, it's like, oh, give us more money. We're in the guys, it's, it's over. And, and also during my hedge fund career, I, I was the guy, when would that have been? Uh, pretty sure it was 2007, maybe 2008. I was buying uh, 40,000 Nikkei one touches yeah. with a 15 year uh, duration. Uh, so could it be so if it was 15 year duration 10 it was a 10 year duration 10 year duration so um it, i got taken out in 2018 but there were times where that one because the guy's like ah wise man from london uh what can you repeat do you want to buy one touch on 40,000? Like, yeah hit me hit me i was changing one of the kids nappies i think back then um and and you know it's, it's something you, you spend you know the, the hedge fund is hundreds of millions of dollars and you spend 50 or 100 thousand dollars but when it hits your mark, when you wake yeah. up, you go into the office, yeah. it's marked at zero. Yeah. yeah. Rightly, I guess. Um, but yeah, if, just think if I if I'd gone for a 20 year, 40,000 one touch, I'm pretty sure I'd, I'd get touched and that would have been interesting. Um, but the positive void coefficient comes to mind. Um, the fact that with these control rods not being um, uh, the thrust of the control rod the coolant kind of creating an accelerant. And so uh, these 5.5% interest rates on the on the dollar global standard, mm -hmm. um, perhaps the most visible repercussions of, of where Fed policy went post-COVID may be felt in the Orient. And and it's I see Japan and China co-joined. Um, and it's a hard one for me because without a doubt, you're at the point of kind of break, you're going to break out on the Nikkei and boom, you know, Warren Buffett has bought yeah. trading companies yeah. and the like. Um, and people want to tell you good things about the banks. I actually think it, trying to rationalize what happened in December with the Federal Reserve, we're like, oh, you know, we're fighting inflation and, you know, mm. we're, you know we're hard money people. And then like, yeah. we're going to get rents. Yeah. I was like, what happened and what do they see um, what do they see so let me tell you something that I have seen because this is all very much you know it's almost like fantasy soccer but but what I have seen is not a fantasy has been 
an extraordinary two-year period of weakness in the dollar yen. Yep. Um, yen has always been a notoriously strong currency yep. for many valid reasons for that with regard to the Japanese trade account. Um, and it would trade roughly 110. Mm-hmm. But we've been as high as the high 150s. Yep. Uh, and that was written off as well. You know, it's, they're still sitting there with negative interest rates at the very short end of the tenor, and the Federal Reserve is at five and a half. So it's, this is the natural repercussion of that. And of course, in the aftermath of the Fed's wobble, what have you, uh, we, we had a quite a stingy, stinging uh, return to strength of the yep. yen. We went into low 140s. But yep. I look at that chart. And again, I keep when I look at charts, I'm uh, I reminisce about a, a wonderful, a legendary hedge fund manager, Bruce Covener. Uh, his legacy firm is Caxton, who are yep, enormous in London, great company. Uh, really, uh, Andrew Laws, chief executive, British guy, making a really fine hand. Uh, and but Bruce was one of these guys. He looked at markets, uh, and he said, yeah, and "He's like, I'm listening. What are you What are you telling me? You know." Uh, and I've always been drawn to that kind of approach. Uh, there's a great deal of hubris in markets where we pontificate yeah. and we tell markets yeah, where they're going. Exactly. I've never been like that. And yeah. some of the greats are like, no, the market's telling me extraordinary things. And such was that impulse from 110 to 150, high 150s in dollar yen that when you look at chart 30, 40, 50 year charts, it's kind of saying, the ground's breaking here. Mm. This I, I can't tell you what it is, but there's for this to happen, this is so unprecedented that we should go looking for reasons that would explain yes. why this will continue. Yeah. And that's what I've been doing. And and where where that journey takes me is so we've mentioned this, we've mentioned collateral-based lending. Uh collateral-based lending typically goes into financial speculation. So uh, Hedge funds never buy stocks or bonds with cash. Yeah. You know, yeah. they just pledge yeah. their existing assets and they get almost a, you know, infinite leverage with that. Um, we mentioned the euro dollar, which makes it sound as if it's London and Paris and Frankfurt. Biggest euro dollar market is Tokyo. Yeah. Japanese uh, money center banks are enormous. And Japanese, as we know, Japan has been in slumber uh, for three decades, and so, and, but you're still charged as a credit officer with, with taking a risk. Yep. Um, and so Japanese banks have looked at their biggest corporate clients. And where are they? They're in Japan. <laughs> so of course, they're based in Japan, but they're investing in mm. China. Ch- you know, and Japan's one of these places, a, a little bit of group set. You know, so they, they've got form. So we had the Asian tiger crisis yes. of 1997. Yep. Um, and what did you find? You found that Japanese banks were at the epicenter of, they had overlent they, their exposure into places like Indonesia was way beyond the pale versus their international compar- uh, comparison banks. And so people like Barclays in the interbank market were lending to these huge monolithic Japanese banks and making a lot of money because the spreads, the the, the chart, you could charge them more and more as the yep. perception of risk. And then the risk officers in London and elsewhere said, we can't lend these guys. There's too much risk in their book. And so my fear is that uh, Japan got caught up in the, the China enigma 
which the Chinese Communist Party you created. He, yep. We are linear GDP. What do what GDP? What GDP growth do you want this year? Five and a half. You've got well, it. We're going to go to five yeah. and a half. Boom. You know. Uh, wow, this is amazing. You know, uh, and and so the f as an interpretation of dollar yen, um, I imagine. And actually, we must bring in any macro conversation still has to have quantitative easing or quantitative. To, we're in an environment just now of tightening, but the environment has been easing. Um, and and again, I've always, it, 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 there's no easing in quantitative easing because it misses the psychology of, of risk-seeking banking agents. Um, but taking this analogy analogy and experiment, thought, thought experiment further, uh, what if the Japanese had actually taken the, the assets, the, the reserve, bank reserve assets, which quantitative easing creates? Mm -hmm. So quantitative mm -hmm. easing creates an enormous surplus of reserve assets. But the banks do nothing with the reserve assets. And, and so the what if question is, if the Japanese banks had taken those reserve, basically uh, JGB cash uh, uh, cash securities, and and they went into the euro dollar system, the international market, and and they they used it as collateral with the, the global pool of, of savings, and they and and from that they effectively they would have a short dollar position, and they took uh, term and credit risk by following their customers into China. Yep. Um, and and the, what resonates with that is that the the initial spark where the yen began to weaken was was not Fed policy, but was actually the world coming to terms with the bubble in Chinese property yep. and the Evergrande when that yep. started to, to raise yep. you know the the attention of others. That's you can kind of date the the move away from one ten to there. Um, so. And each day that that continues, your counterpart, because every day in the euro dollar system, you're, you have to come back to the bank mm -hmm. and say, are we okay? And it's like, yeah. yeah, we're okay. But actually, given the movements, the bank's been saying, me, you know what, I'm, I'm really kind of not great. I kind of would like to reduce my exposure. And when you're reducing your exposure, you're actually buying dollar assets. Yes. Yeah. And so you put thrust behind yes. the, 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 the currency. So there's that. There is... Hong Kong and China. I mean, Hong Kong really is just, it's, it's really China. Um, China was not, China, as we know it, this linear GDP was conceived of in the aftermath of 2008 when interest rates were, the dollar reserve yeah. was at yeah. zero. I am not sure that China et al. works at five and a half percent. And last, last night, or yes, I think, I'm not sure if Hong Kong the stock market was closed overnight. Uh, but the last print, um, Hong Kong was down 3%. Um, the Hang Seng is, wow, I mean, really, really heavy. Yeah. You know, you've had big risk asset uh, recoveries uh, in the rest of the world. You've not seen it in China, but in, in Hong Kong, it's really, really heavy, mm -hmm. really heavy. Uh, not only have you taken out the, the COVID low, yeah. you've taken out you you gone into subsequent yeah. uh, multi-decade lows and it's getting you know because you can't pick up a newspaper you can't be a someone working in the city without a broker saying hey we, you know china's unfashionable yeah. now it's time to buy yeah. 
No one was buying it. I yeah. mean, I actually, and I was thinking we would see quotes in the papers arise. Uh, a lot of China and Hong Kong is going no bid, mm. no bid. Yeah, you've got um, Alibaba. Yeah, Alibaba's yeah. back at the IPO price. Yeah. Now there's things going on again there. There's the, I want to suggest there's a malign influence by um, SoftBank mm-hmm. and SoftBank. So SoftBank, a traditional telecom company that went bonkers. Yeah, uh, and they were allowed to go bonkers because their banking counterparties in Japan are. They're the wrong side of bonkers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And SoftBank has no exposure now to Alibaba, but it's all done via uh, derivatives and it it puts really heavy pressure. Yeah. And the whole, the arm listing as well. I mean, one of my big ifs is SoftBank blows up this shit. SoftBank is going to disappear. It's, it's, it, no one, you're not allowed to talk about it. We'll be taken off the airs. So you can't talk about it. <laughs> SoftBank is crazy bust. Um, but so these are the things. Um, and and so I mentioned dollar yen. And finally, dollar yen, the, the real rate is is yen renminbi, yen won. Yes. And um, so I, I, I was saying, tell me the exchange rate and mm-hmm. I'll tell you where the asset prices are. Yeah. Um, Dollar one, the the Chinese currency, you need about seven point two, what I call red cabbage, to buy one uh, Benjamin, um, and if and, and, and to my mind, that's all. That's everything that's wrong with the world. I think you should require four, four yeah. and a half yeah. of of the Chinese currency to buy a dollar, given everything how they've changed and how yes. powerful they are. That they should their citizens should be richer. And there have been nefarious routes taken to avoid that happening. Uh, but when I see dollar yen, when I see the Hang Seng market, when I see, you know, the China, China the data, there's not getting, there's no remedy so far. You, uh, and you can see how they're trying to replace the 30% of GDP that came from the housing bubble with more and more inroads into export markets, which brings them now you're the verge of taking taking down the European yep. automotive market, yep. right? and so there's, you reach a line where people say you can't cross that line. Um, does that one go seven twenty to the dollar to seven fifty to eight to eight fifty? Those that's an environment that historically, going back as far as twenty fifteen, I've warned that were that to happen, um, it would be a kind of Mad Max deflationary mm-hmm. world. You'd have yeah. you'd have ten year back at those lows yeah. in the US. Yeah. Um, now, and, and then other things have been happening um, allied and corollary to that um, the, you sh- so you always want to be watching corporate transactions and an old four of mine from about 10 years ago uh, Japanese Steel uh, just uh, announced in December a takeover of US Steel mm-hmm. Carnegie, you know, Carnegie would be you know what did they say? He'd be uh, restless in his grave. Like, what's going on? What the dickens? So, that really be. Oh, and and you know that that came after uh, the heavens. A, a U.S. mining company. Shame on me for not being able to remember its name. Had made had bid for U.S. steel. Yes. And and being rebuffed, but, but made a, a generous offer. Um, and the the Japanese came in like three months later, and like. I think the U.S. group had offered, I'm making these numbers up, but like 25. And the Japanese are like, 
what about 55? Yeah. You know, it wasn't like, what about 27? What about, what about, you know, it was insane deal. Uh, but why that was in, of interest is the US market can produce, has capacity to produce, I, I want to say about 120 million metric tons of steel. Mm-hmm. Um, Japan, about the same. Um, China, I never thought they would achieve this. Um, well, so they did achieve it. They had achieved it, but I never thought their demand would match it. But they they have the capacity to produce um, like 1.2 billion metric tons of steel. Yeah. It's like more than 10 times the size of the US market, six times the size of US and Japan together. Uh, but up until 2019, they were consuming it domestically yeah. because you had a bubble yeah. in housing and, and elsewhere. But, and, and also... They spent a lot of money on it, infrastructure, but and technology, because uh, you can make some shabby steel, if yep, you will. Yeah. And there's a there's a, a quality curve. Exactly. And what we'd we'd seen uh, back in the day, Warren Buffett used to own Costco, because uh, South Korean steel became yeah. the the envy of of Japanese yeah. steel. Um, but it was like the, the Chinese will never get there. Of course, but they're, they're there. Okay. And you now don't have that bubble in the property market and they're now exporting and so my thesis going back to uh, 2012 was my god so in japan japanese steel companies are they're operationally leveraged you've got a a furnace you've got to run it all the time yeah it's expensive um and and then because we live in a world where interest rates are are zero um fixed income becomes a uh, fixed income becomes a volatility product Mm -hmm. And, and so actually, they've issued a ton of debt, and they're issuing even more debt to make this this deal. They pay nothing, mm-hmm. and then because of volatility, and you want to create an extra bit, like the U.S. subprime thing, the Japanese banks they sell uh, CDS protection. Mm-hmm. So you can buy a million dollars of pr- protection on a default in a Japanese uh, steel company uh, for something like three thousand bucks. Right? I mean, remember like. And if you go to buy that, and I, I used to own lots of it, like, you're crazy. It'll yeah. never happen. But what if this billion plus capacity suddenly says, you know what? We're desperate. We've got to keep uh, feeding our furnace. Um, and so desperate people, the Japanese have just jumped into the US. I'm like, interesting. So, I mean, if I was running my fantasy uh, trade for this year, yeah. one of them uh, would be um, that I'd want to pay 3,000 bucks on uh, Japanese steel companies uh, on, the, on the risk that uh, the market will get will suddenly wake up to what's happening in, in, in China and, and the proliferation of these exports and, and suddenly seek to reappraise um, something which is trading at, at, at 30 basis points in the five year on the run might trade at 3,000. Yeah. That'd be, a, that'd be a, a cool return. Now, he, last time you were in March, you were... Uh waxing lyrical about grayscale and 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 had sort of i think made your first foray into bitcoin there's been a lot of noise around bitcoin with the uh, with the rollout of the etfs have you changed your view at all no i mean so, so i um i have no i've got i've just got a pretty dumb view on on bitcoin uh, which has actually served me very well uh since i became curious about it uh from early last this mm-hmm. time last year so grayscale let's let's just put some color there grayscale um 
is an investment trust, which is to say a closed-end fund. And it was an originator. It was one of the first vehicles which allowed institutions and and the broader church of people uh, to come in and gain an exposure to Bitcoin. Those not willing to have it in a digital wallet and pay all the fees for jumping over these different platforms. Um, And that was a big deal. And as the Bitcoin continued to take off and had these periodic kind of S-curve movements, people clamored uh, for that exposure. Because if you could get a bit of Bitcoin in your equity fund, yeah. wow, yeah. you know, that's the kind of stupid stuff I used to do when I was running European mutual funds. Out of, but, you know, back in the day when uh, when NASDAQ was collapsing, you know, I'd have Swiss bonds and people are like, but that's not a European stock. I'm like, who cares? Exactly. <laughs> it's going up. You know? Exactly. But um, so what happened in the clamor um, and, and with some technical things, a, a, a professional, re- there's a term in America, a registered investor, let's say. You could actually call up Grayscale uh, and ask them to issue more stock, which would be a six-month period, but it'd be issued at par. Mm-hmm. But it would be trading at a premium to par, and your your best case, uh, uh, your, your strongest conviction would be over the next six months, Bitcoin would be up at least 20%. Yeah. And so that created a huge, huge hedge fund trade, people coming into this grayscale that were issuing this stock, uh, and then you, you you would sell and take your profits. Yeah. Now, there was an, another character that I interviewed in my my my, my podcast, Kyle Davies of uh, Three Arrows. Yes, yeah. So my, my buddies were doing this trade. They're doing this trade in like a million dollar clips. You know, because you've got to be mindful six months, you've got, you got, yeah. you got to trade it. There's got to be an in and got to be an out. Kyle came in and Kyle's managing billions at this point with a, a Bitcoin crypto strategy. I was like, I love this. I, I'm people are falling over to give me money. I, so he came in, and there was one point where it's, it's a bit like when a serpent swallows an elephant. You know, so you see the snake, and then there's this yeah. big bulge. And the bulge was that you you knew in six months' time, Grayscale were going to issue not a million dollars but like $30 billion of new stock. And that was cool because everyone loved Bitcoin and it was at a 40% premium. Except over the course of the six months, it all blew up. And so suddenly people are like, holy, I'm like, who's going to buy? And and, and also, why did it blow? It blew up in Grayscale's case because there became more and more other means of gaining Bitcoin exposure. You could buy futures. There was a Canadian mutual fund, et cetera. And now so, an ETF. And now, and now ETFs. Um, so uh, so you went from a 40% plus premium to NEV, and, and Kyle just having to puke this thing, you went to a 40% discount. Of course, Bitcoin fell from 70,000 yep. to about 17,000, and you could actually buy the Bitcoin 40% below 70. You could buy it at 10,000, let's say. Uh, and so that's what I was talking about. I was like, you've had a bear market. You've had yeah. a profound mean four, five, six standard deviation, mean reversion. Don't know when it will remedy itself, but I've got to be there. And then the company came in and they sought to change the status from the closed end to a mutual fund. And people were like, that'll never happen. People doubted, uh, do they really have the Bitcoin? Yes. Did they lend well, it away? Been a lot of that. Yeah, um, and all of that, so all of that's passed. Yeah. Um, Bitcoin's gone from 17,000 to, I don't know, 42, yeah. 43,000. And the discount's gone from, Z, uh, it's gone from minus 40. It's been a great, Great, yeah. great trade. Um, now, my dumb idea about Bitcoin is 
size, the girls say size matters, I don't know, the, um, is this, the, the, the magnitude of the Bitcoin market. So not crypto, just the Bitcoin yeah. and, and measuring it with the, the maximum number of coins that can be issued, 21 and a half million, let's say, times today's price. Uh, you do that math today, which I haven't done recently, but I want to guess you're about uh, 0.8 trillion mm -hmm. uh, US dollars in mm -hmm. size. And it ain't big enough. No, exactly. It ain't, it, it, and it seems to be a legitimate it's, it, it proof of concept. It works. It has scarcity. There's going to be another halving. Halving I've always been a bit skeptical of. Uh, but... Yeah, I think it halving every four years and it always coincides with another big pop yeah. in the market. Uh, effectively, what the halving means is that uh, you are the, the the number. So they haven't issued twenty one and a half million coins yet. Um, this, the this, the rapidity to which you can mine has just you're putting a break against yes. it. Yeah, less. So there's less new supply. Yeah. So uh, what Bitcoin enjoys with the halving which is unlike gold. And so it's a, I, I want to say it's a, a positive style characteristic is if the gold price jumps from 20, where is gold to, sorry, gold is what, 3,000, uh, 2,000 bucks. Yeah, 2,000, yeah. If, if gold goes from 2,000 to 4,000, dream on, but if it goes from 2,000 to 4,000, uh, gold miners, copper guy, everyone's going to be doing, yeah. Mining it. Cause mining you, you mine, yeah. you mine gold as an orphan, plus you'd be dedicated to, yeah. to, to, to doing. So supply would go up. Correct. Whereas we're in an environment with Bitcoin, where with the halving, it's the opposite. Yes. So that's kind of yeah. that's kind of cute. And my point is, why did I rubbish the notion of gold at four thousand? It's just gold today is um, thirteen, fourteen trillion dollars. So it's fourteen times the size of Bitcoin. And I'm just saying, I can imagine Bitcoin. Bitcoin yeah. could be at two hundred thousand. Yeah. It would be what then? It would be what two, two and a half trillion dollars. Yeah. It's like it's not big enough to like big deal. Yeah, it could yeah. be that U.S. equities are fifty trillion dollars. So I still think uh, Bitcoin is too small. The price is, is too low. Um, I'm not proud of that argument, but that's my argument. No, that makes a lot of sense. And then, Hugh, anything else that you'd like to to comment on today? We've had a very good sort of run through twenty four. Yeah. Um, how can how can listeners get in touch with you? I mean, obviously the. The asset capitalist is still running, running strong. Well, the, the, this, this is a, gr a great conundrum because um, I'm, I'm flow. You, we were discussing. You were like, "Hey, come in, let's let's talk." And I'm like, "I've got nothing to talk about," you know. And yeah. You you put a microphone in front of me. I can't shut up. Well, I, that's why we love you as a guest. Yeah. Um, and I've not done any podcasts of, of late. I do have a Patreon service, and even there, I've been I've been a bit floozy. Uh, but I'm, I'm a little bit remiss. Um, it's not flowing within me as yet. And then the other problem I have is um, I'm front of camera. You know, I, I, I need technicians to make it happen. Yeah. And I don't have them just now. So I'm working on it because I, I do like it. It brings me joy. Um, I am working on a, you'll like this, a, a, because, you know, I mean, Warren Buffett did celebrate um, apathy and sloth. Okay, and, and I'm definitely becoming more slothful uh, and you know, the revolution in AI I've, mm -hmm. I've embraced yeah and I've got, a, I've got an I've got a I've, what can I say I, I bought I've got a, a an AI version of me yeah and 
And so I wrote a book. I must publish the book. Yeah. Maybe I'll do that. Uh, but the book has been swallowed up by the, the AI. 15 years of my eclectic and macro lens yes. has been swallowed up. Three, four years of all of my Twitter correspondence is within that thing um, and others. And and so you can you can ask it questions. And it's pretty good. So I ask it questions. I'm like, hey, you. Hey, asset capitalist. How's it going? Uh, but I said, what is asset capitalism? And I, I was blown away with the answer. You know, so, um, so I'm still working on that. Uh, but that's something that I, I want to release because that's always on. Yes. We'll put that yeah. maybe on a Twitter channel or something. Yeah. You can call it. It talks like me. Mm-hmm. And so you can call it uh, and say, uh, get into a fight because I'll fight you as well, you know. Say, oh, the Fed's going to raise interest rates. No, it's not going to raise interest rates. You know, you're not. You know, you're still talking about Japanese steel. You know, you you, you failed on that trade ten years ago. Now you're still talking about give up. You're a jerk. You're old. You know, so that that's something. But um, but yeah, um, um, if anyone's listening, they want to help. They want to be the technician to make it all happen. Then then contact me. Uh, you'll find me in www. Barnes. I'm not doing a lot. <laughs> Fantastic, Hugh. Always an absolute delight, and you're welcome back here anytime. Thank you. Very much appreciated. Thanks for listening to Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.